This is Monocle On Design, a show where we unpack everything from architecture and craft to furniture and fashion. I'm Nick Manise. On today's show, we're getting a little theatrical. We meet the designers behind the new Taipei Performing Arts Centre and talk bespoke venue design with the architect of London's ABBA Arena. Plus, we continue our summer series looking at another seasonal staple, inflatable water toys. All that coming up on Monocle On Design. The Taipei Performing Arts Centre has officially opened to the public in Taiwan. Designed by Dutch architecture studio OMA, it's located on the site of Taipei's famous Xilin Night Market, a public space which has been cleverly incorporated into the building. The compact structure is composed of three venues, the 800-seat Globe Playhouse, a 1,500-seat Grand Theatre and the 800-seat Blue Box. All are connected to a central cube, which accommodates their stages, backstages and support spaces, while also allowing two of the theatres to be combined to form a super theatre. For more on this project and the innovative design, we caught up with OMA managing partner David Giannotten and Pritzker Prize winner Rem Kulhas, one of the practice's founding partners. We hear from Rem first. It, it was a competition and, and that's basically how it started. Uh, uh, and, and that's a kind of interesting uh, situation because there are two ways you can start an architecture project. Either somebody comes to you specifically and asks you to collaborate on, on making something, which means that there's a lot of interaction. Or in a competition, you have to convince in one go and there is almost no participation of the client. And this was a very uh, ambitious project, uh, which is also kind of part of a series of uh, theatres we, we have been kind of working on. The most interesting thing is how we and how the client were able to actually support the entire uh, enterprise. Yeah, what was very interesting about this competition was also that we had it kind of in view already for quite some time. And then when it came out, one of the biggest statements was that they wanted to take the Shilin Night Market off the site and put this formal theater there. And when we went to the site, we went together to the site visit, we really felt the enormous energy of that kind of almost informal theatrical city space where everybody comes for food and cheap goods and stuff. And we really thought it was a pity to, to erase that. So we wanted to keep the public space so that the people could have their domain still to do the activities of the night market and then have the formal theater mixed with it and, and on top of it. That was not possible through the official regulations of the competition but by limiting the height and putting everything very tight together being extremely efficient in the envelope we were actually managed that we could keep the public domain free and I think that was a very strong move in the competition and you saw that uh, we were also the only uh, submission out of 140 that had that move. And then we m progressed to the second phase. We uh, made it better in the second phase. And then we came out on top because obviously that also solved a political problem they had. Kind of how do you explain to your citizens to take a night market out for something so formal. And on the second, it also delivered as an, a building that had opportunities that no other theatre actually had by putting everything together. 
from my understanding, the big moves were maintaining that and keeping that night market and that public space, but also making the actual building transparent through the day so people can understand yeah, the, the process. The other big move is basically uh, that we've been, or, or the world has been, uh, there's almost an overdose of new theatres, and all those new theatres combine different auditoriums. Basically, each of those auditoriums has its own independent uh, stage apparatus, so there's a kind of enormous redundancy and, and what is kind of really strange is that a model that is already 2,000 years old is still kind of repeated even if it is sometimes clothed in, in kind of different and more fashionable uh, kind of entities. And in this case we combined the kind of particularly the stage areas in such a way that uh, there is a kind of really radical extension of what you can do with the theatre and how you can use it. Yeah, the super theater was actually, by making it extremely efficient and putting everything very tight together, the backstages and the side stages touch each other. And by putting acoustic panels in between and being able to lift them, we could suddenly create a space where theater makers could work that normally have to go out of the formal theater and go into an industrial area. Um, and you can transform with that also the view of how people come and look at the building because sometimes you're in one space, sometimes you're in this combined space, then you're in the other space, uh, sometimes you come from the side, sometimes you come from the front. Being very efficient, we found the largest possible uh, use and the largest possible theater, formal theater space, which was a unbelievable nice coincidence, you could say. Yeah, so, so here you see the kind of situation, the, you know, this is two theaters, the stage area in between, and so it can be either separated or coupled. And if you couple it, you get kind of really a space at the scale of a factory. I mean, I want to ask what, you know, you talked about this being, it's a 2,000 year old model, you know, with theatre. Why are we so, maybe not reluctant, but why why don't we look to reinvent it or, or not reinvent it, but explore well, I, it? I, I, I think we, are, we have been reinventing it all the time, of course, because there's now a kind of enormous technology, you know, particularly in the last 50 years that uh, vastly extends all the kind of possibilities and, and that, that also kind of changes a lot of the practices in a theatre. You know, there is a kind of enormous amount of automation, but there's also, for instance, in terms of artificial acoustics, uh, enormous impact on stage and on kind of singing. And, and on. So that is all there, but we've not taken the consequence uh, that we then also kind of express some of the changes. And of course, theatre making is storytelling, and storytelling is as old as we are. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of, the, the, even the, the hieroglyphs and all these things on, on the walls is already a way of storytelling, a way of theatre in a way. Uh, so the tradition of storytelling is also very important in the theatre world. So to combine this extreme innovation that is happening in the last 30 years with also that tradition, of course, creates a dilemma for yeah. people when you create a theater mm. do I respond to one do we respond to mm. the other or is there a possibility to actually accommodate both mm. and that is what we try to do is really innovate the model of theater making but also make it possible to do the traditional performances like Chinese opera in the big mm. hall of TPEC we tuned it in such a way which is very difficult because Chinese opera is very high very pronounced it's very difficult acoustically. We, we tuned the whole to that, but we made it in such a way that we could soften it for drama and we could kind of even soften it more for these big plays that normally happen in a factory space. 
So we were also looking for new opportunities, how to combine things. Uh, by finding these spaces, it was our obligation to kind of try to solve that. And we did that by building the whole building 1 to 50, really testing it in labs, adjusting it. And actually, we were still adjusting when they were already building mm -hmm. to fine tune it. And now they tested it and it turns out that the hole is actually even a bit drier than we had hoped mm -hmm. for. So even the performance is a bit better. We can have a wider range than what we thought. So it's also an adventure in a way of which you only know the outcome. Mm -hmm. The moment is finished and then you can still fine tune, but you cannot change anymore. So that is a very interesting given also in trying to find this multifunctionally mm -hmm. traditional kind of theater versus kind of this very innovative uh, space. OMA's David Giannotten there, and before that, Rem Kulhas. We'll be right back after this. Tune in to Monocle on Culture, where we grill our panel of critics to get the inside line on the best in the world of film, music, art, literature and more. It's just got this synth section that kind of makes you want to swing through the saloon doors straight to the dance floor. I appreciate that some of the most brilliant art, most of it, grounds you in this moment and makes you confront it. With industry insiders and the odd bit of reportage too, it's bound to keep the most discerning of culture vultures very well fed. Why'd You Come In Here Looking Like That is a song that is absolutely going to make you want to put on a pair of tight jeans and go boot scooting, even if it's just in <laughs> your front room. Monocle on Culture, premiering Mondays at 2000 London time here on Monocle 24 and available thereafter wherever you get your podcasts. This week, we're on to the second instalment of our summer series, where we take a closer look at the design of a seasonal staple. Today, it's the inflatable or floaty. We head to Seattle in the US, where Monocle's Gregory Scruggs has taken to his local lake for a deep dive looking at the whimsical flotilla found on the water. I take daily dips come summertime in Seattle's Lake Washington. The lake is roughly 100 kilometers around and serves as the swimming hole for nearly 2 million people. There are neither Badi nor Banyi here, however. Our swimming culture is one of public lakeside parks and beaches adorned with bare bones changing rooms and toilets. As a result, bring your own is the name of the game. Amidst the display of portable coolers, foldable beach chairs, outdoor games, and picnic blankets on a typical day at the lake, one accessory stands out, the floaty. Lounging in the lake can be an all-day affair, especially on weekends, and one can only tread water for so long. That makes flotation devices a must. While the sporty set are fond of kayaks and stand-up paddleboards, the most popular means of bobbing in the lake for hours on end is an inflatable float. Available at most chemists and grocery stores come summertime, today's floaties are far more colorful than the dull, monochrome, raft, and inner tube design of yore. When I swim today, I'm liable to be sharing the water with a motley flotilla. From university students to 40-somethings, my fellow bathers are plopped down on pizza slices, pineapples, unicorns, avocados, dragons, octopi, watermelons, butterflies, corgis, tigers, flamingos, a donut with a bite taken out of it. 
The anonymous industrial designers behind these cheap and mass-produced plastic goods, most of which are lucky to survive a single summer, are nevertheless channeling a storied heritage. Whimsical design has in fact infused flotation devices from day one. A butterfly motif decorated the Swim Easy buoys, a swimming aid sold by Dean's Ragbook Company of London in the early 1900s. A pair can be found in the Imperial War Museum's collection, honoring their role in a British soldier's escape from a German POW camp in World War I. Garish as they may be, I'm fond of the floaty tableau that dots our vast freshwater refuge. They bring a pop art sensibility during these brief but glorious summer months. Amidst the grandeur of the lake's natural setting, tall Pacific Northwest evergreen trees along shore and a vista of glacier-capped Mount Rainier in the distance, the frivolity of floaties keeps us from taking ourselves too seriously in summer. For Monocle in Seattle, I'm Gregory Scruggs. One of London's newest event spaces, ABBA Arena is located in the city's east. A purpose-built venue, it's home to ABBA Voyage, a concert where live musicians and digital avatars of the Swedish pop group perform to 3,000 fans each night. With a complex brief to build a bespoke space for the show, the project was undertaken by Stewfish Entertainment Architects, a practice with decades of experience creating ambitious concerts and performance venues for the likes of the Rolling Stones, Pink Floyd and Madonna. This show's producer, Maylee Evans, caught up with lead designer of ABBA Arena, Alicia Tukach, to discuss material choices, the audience journey into the space and the field of entertainment architecture. When you receive a brief like that and you're told, ABBA want an arena, yeah. what are your first thoughts? Where does your brain go to? Sort of what is whirring in your mind at that moment? Typically, when we get a brief from an artist, whether it's for a show or a building, it's always starting, like, what is the performance space? Like, how are they performing, whoever it is, whether it's digital or physical? Really starting from inside the space. So with this project, obviously, it's a whole arena, but it's very much starting from the show. What's the show? What's the relationship with the audience and the and the performer? Defining that kind of inner auditorium layout. And then in the case of ABBA, it's then from going out from there. And so you've ended up with this sort of hexagonal sort of structure. So Mm. what did you know about the performance or what kind of you needed to end up with that sort of final configuration? When we joined the project in kind of May 2019, we were around the table with ILM and the producers, Svano and Ludwig and Benny and Bjorn, and it was really about together working out what is the... How are we going to present this? What is that show? Um, so the hexagonal form came up after that. So it's really trying to find that perfect relationship of audience and p- digital performer. Because obviously we knew it was going to be digital. Um, but we did also know there was going to be physical performers in terms of the band on stage. So we had kind of a brief. We knew that there was going to be 3,000 audience. And the, we wanted part of them standing part of them seated so we had quite a lot of brief points but the hexagon really came from how we wanted the space to feel like a traditional theatre where everyone's in rows facing one way didn't feel right and we knew it wanted to be more immersive 
in terms of the space. So we wanted the audience to be able to see each other. So that's kind of how we started looking at different forms and the hexagon felt like a really kind of neat form in terms of being able to share the experience. Going back to um, the amount of tech that's sort of involved in the show, how much of the design was shifting alongside that production? Because I imagine they must have been making discoveries and changes to the show. Yeah, sort of how we were doing it very much consecutively, so we were doing it at the same time. The show really came first, so it, it's always about the show. And then as the show developed, and you know, we we you know you know you need something to be able to be hung here it, it's done at, it's done at the same time which is what makes it such a great project for us because as show designers and architects we understand that shows take time to evolve it was really great that the collaboration of the teams and people working together and moving this forwards at the same time you know, as, as it's developed you're a lead architect on this project but you also are a production designer mm. so how do you manage kind of, I guess, those hats and sort of which to wear and when to maybe don one and really not put the other on? The way I see it is that the, uh, the arch- our architectural expertise enhance the production design side of the, you know, of the work we do and then vice versa. As an architect, we can bring that kind of production design into architecture. So really, I don't ever really see it as different. For me, it's one, one job and the job is, you know, to be an entertainment architect. I feel like so much about going to see a live performance, it's about that journey you take the minute you kind of walk through a venue, that anticipation, you know, maybe go from quite a closed queuing space to, oh, wow, I'm here in the arena. Yeah. All these other people are here with me. So it would be great if you could kind of talk me through that journey that you want audience members to go on. What was the kind of sense or maybe some of the details that you've used in the space? We knew what the inside space, it was going to be kind of a very technical, there's a lot of equipment in that auditorium. And quite early on we knew that externally we wanted the building to be completely different to that so being a lot more natural kind of low-tech really so there's that kind of difference and it was very interesting talking with the producers about the journey of the audience and really thinking about when they buy their ticket that's their journey starts so even before they get to the venue but in terms of designing the kind of front front of house areas we wanted it to be very natural, made from timber, you know, bringing that kind of Swedish influence to the design, kind of being welcoming and friendly, but also this slightly mysterious, so you're not quite sure what it is. And then there's a moment when you transition from that natural space into the this kind of inner sanctum, this technological space, and you transition through tunnels which start to take you into this like more digital world. So it's very much going from this natural, physical world and transitioning into this technical world. We purposefully split the audience. We have two tunnels that split left and right. So it's exactly the same journey, but 
we split the audience quite early on and we wanted to create these kind of light tunnels with with light and sound that kind of draw people in because we you know we wanted to get people into the auditorium efficiently a part of the brief was especially from the kind of planning application is to have completely step-free access so we wanted to make sure it was completely accessible for everybody so we have series of ramps that kind of slowly rise up and then get you to the kind of right level if you're seated and then if you're on the dance floor you have like an extended journey which takes you further around and then down onto the dance floor area I've spoken to a couple of people who've who've seen the show, and that was the one thing that they they picked up on, and how it felt really solid mm. as a space to be in, knowing that it's a temporary space. But yeah. you look around, and you know, got all these columns of timber. So I wondered whether you could talk to me about that material choice a little bit more, and, and sort of yeah. where that came from, or how you landed with that. Yeah, so there's kind of the structures kind of split into two parts. So you have the superstructure of the the venue, which is a steel structure, which is clad with the timber rain screen but internally all of the seating um, and all of the inner area is completely made from cross laminated timber which means it's structurally sound using timber but it's also a finish so you you don't have to have plasterboard and paint and you know, everything added on to a structure so it makes it really efficient in terms of demountability because obviously we, we designed everything to be able to be demounted um, so it was very efficient, but also that kind of heavy quality was really important that it didn't feel like it was a temporary structure, like quite a lot of them feel, you know, they feel light. Um, so that was quite purposeful. And I wanted to ask more broadly about, I guess, the term entertainment architecture, because it, yeah, just for me, I just smile when I say it, it just sounds like a lot of fun. And I wondered what it's like to work on projects where, you know, spectacle, being bold and ambitious is part mm. of the remit, kind yeah. of, it's kind of expected. Yeah. What that's like for you as, um, as an architect to work on projects where people are wanting you to think outside of the box and to bring really out their ideas to the table it's a dream job really you know you're designing spaces for audiences so whether it's a building or a show or an installation they're all for an audience so the number one priority is how are the audience experiencing this design so it's it's great and then obviously getting to see people use the building or go and see the show is wonderful because you don't always get that as an architect you know to see how things are being used so it's we're very fortunate to to get feedback as well from fans and people who who love love the shows, love the building. Alicia Tukach there of Stewfish Entertainment Architects. She was in conversation with Maylee Evans. We'll be back in just a moment. 
The same stories, the same views dominate global news coverage. But The Globalist goes beyond the noise to unpack what's really happening, to find fresh perspectives and considered voices in current affairs, business and much more. She was doing this all on her own and I think that she's been a real inspiration to journalists around the world, particularly where there are tough areas of freedom of speech. I think that one of the mantras that's going to come out of Washington in the Biden administration going forward is unity, but unity with accountability. The Globalist, live every weekday at 8 a.m. Zurich time, 7 a.m. in London, 2300 in Los Angeles, on Monocle 24, or wherever you get your podcasts. Finally on today's show, we dive into the archives. As a journalist who moonlights as a stand-up comedian, I can tell you that a good gig is made not just by the jokes a comic tells, but also by the place they're told in. Whether it's an intimate theatre or a makeshift performance space in a restaurant, everything from the layout of seats to the materials used can help to amplify the laughs. Stand-up comedy. As an art form, the relationship between the performer and the audience is intimate. Responses are immediate and honest. At its simplest, a stand-up show is a constant dialogue flowing back and forth between crowd and comedian. Jokes and funny gestures flow from the comic to the audience and applause and laughter, and sometimes silence, flow back. But the environment, the architecture and design of the room can have a serious impact. A well-designed space can be used to the advantage of the performer benefiting both the comedian and crowd. Comedians, often untrained as architects or interior designers, know this all too well. They'll talk about a hot room, a space that's easy to get laughs in because of the way it's set up. A hot crowd, in this instance, is a bonus too. Theatres and arenas aside, these spaces range from specially designed clubs to comedy nights hosted in a local pub's event space, and the rooms that are the hottest have particular seating, lighting and spatial characteristics. So, for starters, the room, regardless of size, should be made to feel small and intimate, even if a crowd of 200 people is packed in. The old saying that laughter is contagious rings particularly true here. Seats should be set out so that people are close to one another, and unlike the spacious apartment you were looking at last week, the ceiling should be low. If you're attending an open mic night, your expectations should be too. A room with a roof that's high above the stage or with audience members dispersed stops laughter from spreading, sucking the energy out of the space. In contrast, a low roof and densely packed seating helps the crowd forget that they came with friends or on their own, instead making them feel like one big group enjoying it together. This gives them and the performer bigger and better laughs. Lighting, or lack of it, is important too. Why? Well, it's a risk to laugh. To be caught having a chuckle when other audience members are silent is potentially embarrassing. So the audience should be left in the dark. It gives people confidence that they won't be caught out. In contrast, the performer should be well lit and front on. Facial features need to be visible. The lift of an eyebrow or the curl of a lip can be crucial to the delivery of a joke, so the crowd needs to see this detail. To complement this, the stage should be positioned so that the comedian is front and centre at all times. 
directing the crowd's attention and ensuring that everyone can see the performer's face. Beyond these characteristics of appropriate seating, lighting, ceilings and staging, personal tastes can take over. The room can be colourfully furnished or stick to a more minimalist aesthetic. We'd suggest some Mattiazzi Zampa chairs by Jasper Morrison and considered venue lighting by Santa and Cole. And that's all for today's show. For more design stories, listen to our five-minute midweek bonus show, Monocle on Design Extra, which airs on Thursdays. Or, if you prefer print, then pick up a copy of Monocle magazine on all good newsstands now. Today's episode was produced by Maylee Evans. She also edited the show with assistance from Callum McLean. I'm Nick Benice, and you can reach me on nm at monocle.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>